Welcome to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. Today we are continuing our series on games and social change. I'll be talking to Dr. Rachel Laws, a consumer psychologist. We get into a lot of insightful observations that she's made about how gamers interact with games. I really appreciate how she takes things that other people ignore or laugh off and finds a nugget of information to take. All right, I'm here with Dr. Rachel Laws coming in from London. Could you introduce yourself for our listeners? Hi, Chez. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. I'm Rachel Laws. I'm British, as you can probably tell. And um, I'm a consumer psychologist, and I've been playing video games my whole life. When was the first time that you, you know, you say you've been playing games your whole life. When was the first time you saw games as not just something fun, something to play, but something that could be more revealing about human psychology or, or something else more impactful? It's It's been a really interesting journey. So psychology and gaming are two things that have been a huge part of my life since forever, you know. It's only recently that they started to overlap, I guess. So um, my, in my regular working life, I say I'm in psych- consumer psychology. So what that means is that I've got a PhD in social psychology, okay? And I use that knowledge to um, help brands be more successful and help them to understand, particularly with an emphasis on understanding their customers and understanding what customers need. Okay, so that's that's what I do. I help brands understand people a bit better and then I help them develop better kind of marketing that, you know, kind of is a bit more relevant and authentic and all of that stuff. And so I've been using my kind of knowledge of psychology to do that for a couple of decades and psychologists are interested in certain things. They're routinely interested in things like narratives and storytelling, and they're endlessly interested in the ways that people craft identities for themselves. And then, as it, and these are clearly things which occur in gaming all the time, right? You see, you know, as soon as you come into contact with games, you'll immediately start to encounter people talking about things like narrative and story, and you know, particularly there are sort of these debates about things like how much story should a game impose on the player or do players really want to invent it for themselves? And this is very hotly debated, you know. You can see kind of arguments, quite heated arguments will break out on Twitter, you know, where you've got game developers saying things like, well, actually, you also that you want story, but people are happiest when we don't craft much story in at all because then you've got more of a chance to do your own thing, you know. So these are uh, industry debates, but they're also deeply psychological debates, right? that's what I've been doing with psychology in my professional life. And then gaming for, you know, for 25 years I've been gaming and it's just been running alongside my, you know, everyday life. So I started out with an Amiga back in the early nineties and played um, Dizzy the Egg and those types of platform games. And then I played um, a lot of early PC games, like all of Peter Molyneux's early work, Populous, all that type of thing. And I played Leisure Suit Larry when it was in 16 colours. <laughs> <laughs> what a resplendent experience that was. And so it's only in recent years that I've started to feel that there was such a lot going on in gaming that is psychologically interesting that I could see humans exhibiting the all these fascinating, complex, 
layered behaviour. And I thought, you know what, this is just ridiculous. Why are we even keeping this a secret? People should know about this. The whole world should know about this. Gaming is not just this trivial time-wasting activity. It's really creative. And people are trying to solve problems and answer philosophical questions about the human condition, you know. And so I started to allow my gaming life and my professional life as a business psychologist to bleed into each other. And that's having interesting results like this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned talking about narrative in games and kind of the struggle of how much the game designer should put mm-hmm. in. You know, that is that's so true that I see so many people that, you know, they complain and clamor, you know, we want better stories, we want more interesting stories. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I'm saying that, but then when I actually sit down to play a game, I find that I'm just skipping through cutscenes because, you yeah. know, <laughs> I I don't want to wait. I want to get to you know, what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's definitely a, a big struggle, even for people like me who definitely believe that the games can be impactful and have meaningful mm. stories. Mm. I think it sort of got to the point where we can't really ignore it anymore. You know what I mean? For a long time, gaming, while it was growing into the gigantic industry that it is today, you know, in the in the early years, it was very much regarded as a sort of minority interest and people who didn't know anything about games didn't feel obliged to find out about them. You know, it wasn't something that you needed to know about. And I think that's changed now. You know, the, the games as a form of entertainment are eclipsing other media. And there's such a lot of money involved. After a certain point, everybody, certainly people in the business world, sit up and take notice. And about time as well, because as I say, there's all, when you look at how, what people are actually doing with games, there's a lot of really creative and interesting activity going on. And some of it is very social and embedded in their relationships with other humans and the social world. And some of it is very personal and they're kind of experimenting with, you know, interesting psychological situations and things like that that games provide for us. So I'm really happy that, you know, gaming has finally reached a point where you can't ignore it anymore because I've got a lot to say now about the psychology of gaming and I'm kind of who's waiting for the right moment. I think we finally arrived. <laughs> yeah. Listeners will probably get annoyed that I continue to say this, but you know, if you want to understand the future, it's going to be really difficult without understanding gaming, at least to yeah. a very basic degree, because it's playing a part in everything that people are taking yeah. concepts from gaming, stories from gaming and applying it all over the place that's right yeah that's right i think it goes both ways actually as well i think you know you kind of have this there's this interesting relationship between gaming art and the the situations in life and i guess what i mean by that is that um, as gaming has grown to the gigantic multi-billion dollar industry that it is today it's also taken on this new cultural significance so it's not just hard to ignore for economic reasons but it's hard to ignore for cultural reasons right so that because gaming is so big now, because it's been around for so long, certain games are becoming canonical. And what that means is that it's as important now to know about gaming as it is important to know about things like film, literature, music, who the good bands, right? Mm-hmm. Being, being, gaming has become, and its products have become part of our culture now. And being culturally literate means being able to understand gaming and being able to participate in a conversation where it's just taken for granted that everybody knows what is meant by, I don't know, The Last of Us or um, Horizon Zero Dawn or whatever it may be. Those are linguistic tokens that need to make sense, just like, you know, the names of any other big cultural products. But I, I also think that that relationship between video gaming and more traditional art forms works the other in the other direction as well. 
where you see these kind of well-respected art forms being imported into a gaming space. The earliest examples of that were kind of movie adaptations, which weren't always particularly successful. Mm-hmm. But I've in more recent years, I think that more space has opened up for that, like Firewatch, for example, was quite literary, actually. And I could see how it was quite adult in its themes and thoughtful and quite dependent on language. And I think that um, we'll start to see a move in that direction now in terms of games design. And one reason for that, I suppose, is because not just because games have become more culturally significant and more people fluent in the language of gaming, but also because the early games developers are getting older and they've got more mature um, tastes, you know. So it's all interesting stuff. It's all very interesting. You've got art, video gaming and general life and all of these things are kind of moving ahead and progressing at the same time and in a way that's connected to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you said that you, you write about games for a general audience. Are these the kind of things that you you try to write about and try to explain? It was a kind of it was interesting kind of spin off recently actually. So as I mentioned, you know, I mean, the, the you know, I kind of make my living out of trying to say interesting things about humans and how they work, and um, the way that that the way that 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 happens is that I spend most of my time writing. So you know, just things will occur to me about the human condition and it could be anything. I've got a number of research interests that include things like people doing their grocery shopping and using the airport and stuff like that, you know. So things will strike me as interesting and then I'll write something about it and then somebody who owns a supermarket or an airline will give me some money sometimes, you know. And so I started to write about gaming just because I wanted to because I felt, as I said earlier, it got to a point where it's large enough economically and culturally that nobody can afford to ignore gaming anymore. And I started to write for a business audience saying, hey, look, this is really interesting. Look at what people are doing. They're revealing all of this interesting stuff about themselves as customers and what they want from you. And what happened was that people said, actually, this is really what you're writing is interesting. And it's also really funny. And you should consider just writing some stuff for a general audience. By that, they meant people who actually play games instead of people in suits, you know, which was a good point. And so it was around that time that GameBite, the um, website, offered me a place on its editorial team and basically said, you can just write, you know, you can write about whatever you want as long as you can make it, you know, exciting and relevant to our readers and go nuts kind of thing. So the stuff by me will start to appear there now. So I kind of have a whole new audience now. And that gives me an opportunity to talk about things in a more experiential way, I guess. So there's a huge new exhibition of video games that's about to open in London at the Victoria and Albert Museum. What's interesting about it is that it's, considering it's an ancient museum, the exhibition is not actually a retrospective, so there's not going to be any ancient Pac-Man games there. It concerns the state of gaming now. It's going to be about the art and culture of games now. So I'm going to write a piece for Game Byte about that, about whether you should go, which you should, (laughs) <laughs> um, so I write about that type of stuff and then I also write just experiential stuff about what it's like to be a player so I wrote a piece about um, returning to World of Warcraft after a long break when a new expansion pack comes out so that type of, that type of stuff gives me a chance to explore issues which are more interesting to players than they are to everybody else 
So I take that to mean that you're a World of Warcraft player and you're trying it out, or is this someone you know? <laughs> I played World of I'm one of those annoying people that claims that they um, played World of Warcraft since vanilla WoW in 2004. So it's almost compulsory to say this about yourself, you know. <laughs> so the, the really the true story is I actually started playing it at the end of 2006 when it had already been out for two years. <laughs> but I've been a fairly loyal player since then. I think it's the game that I've stuck with the longest over the years. And um, I recently had some time off because I wanted to, I took myself on this epic project of console gaming and I set up this gigantic project, which I now look back and think what a huge investment of time I was setting up myself, where I, I renounced PC gaming entirely for over a year <laughs> and I picked out 14 console games, which struck me as unmissable games which were things that I would never usually have played, you know, like I played Battlefield and various other things, right? And I lined them up in order, not of publication, which would have been interesting, but in fact, in order of the uh, historical period in which they are set. Hmm. So I, I then went on this epic journey where I played each of these games for a month each on the cons- on a, a console system where um, we started out in prehistory <laughs> with Far Cry Primal and um, Ark Survival Evolved and then went mm-hmm. on a whistle-stop tour through, you know, the Dark Ages, the Enlightenment, 19th century, you know, 1990s, early 20th century into the future, etc. So that was epic, epic. Mm-hmm. But it kept me away from PC gaming. In the end, it kept me away for a, the best part of two years. And so when I came back to World of Warcraft for the newly released Battle for Azeroth, the expansion pack, like millions of other people are doing right now, I had been away for a long time. And I needed to find a way of re-immersing myself into this imaginative space which Blizzard provides for the player, which is an interesting one because one of the things that interests me a lot about World of Warcraft is that it attracts exactly this kind of long relationship. So most Warcrafters have had a long relationship with, with that game. And so it's a game which really fosters this investment of time over a long period and therefore sort of encourages the investment of creative energy in the sense that you start to think of your main character as an independent person and you sort of craft their life story as over the years as you play with them. Um, but interestingly, despite the fact that the game obviously kind of depends on this sort of loyalty and leans in that direction, it doesn't actually give the player much opportunity to kind of record their creative activity. So there are very limited opportunities to customise your character. You can't build permanent objects in the world or build essentially real estate like you can do in Minecraft. The story, there's an incredibly rich story in, in World of Warcraft, you know, like 12, 14 years of narrative, like rich folklore. But there's not really anything the individual player or character can do to alter the outcome of events. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it struck me as an interesting game because on the one hand, it has inspired this incredible um, loyalty. It's not only been very widespread in its appeal, but it stands head and shoulders above most of the games with its ability to retain those players. So they're clearly doing something that's important and meaningful to them, but you can't actually see it. Do you see what I mean? With a a player of Minecraft, they can go, well, look, I've built St. Paul's Cathedral. You're like, wow, okay, that's amazing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or if a person plays The Sims, they can, well, proudly show you, look at this house I've built. And as a matter of fact, like a huge part of um, 
what people do when they play The Sims is just essentially building and decorating houses, and that you know <laughs> that's like quite a big part of the activity that goes on. So it's it's kind of interesting against these competitors that World of Warcraft is so successful in encouraging this type of creative activity, even though as a game it doesn't give the player any way to formally encode it. And so, for example, I worked with a guy who was an avid World of Warcraft player. In fact, he got me helped to get me into it back in the day. And he had half a dozen characters who were all male. And in his mind, they were all brothers and had this. So they not only had individual biographies, which were composed of gaming experiences that you'd had with these characters that you could remember having, you know, like, oh, I remember when I went out with my guild and did this raid or whatever. But also because there were half a dozen of these characters, they also had a family history as well. And so one might have succeeded at another one's expense and so forth. And it became clear to me because he, he told he was willing to tell me about this stuff because he trusted me. And it's kind of weird stuff for adults to say to each other, you know. Hmm. There are still a lot of taboos around adult play. And there's something still not quite normal about an adult, you know, perhaps in their mid-30s, saying to another adult, you know, who's even older, in the workplace as well. When I go home from work at night, I've got these half a dozen fictional characters, and in my imagination, they're all brothers and they're a family, and this happens and that happens. You know what I mean? Right. There's still there's still something slightly unusual about that from a social point of view. But as as a matter of fact, he, I was I was glad that he kind of trusted me enough to tell me about this because I then later found that it reflected my own experience as a player of the game, and I've since talked to other people who've been doing the same thing. So it's very intriguing to me from a kind of business point of view and a psychology point of view that Blizzard manages to attract and retain these kind of highly creative, thoughtful, long-term customers, while at the same time not providing them with very much at all in the game itself, where they can mm-hmm. record their creative activity. I find that quite interesting and quite puzzling. Yeah. Uh, I bet some other games companies would love to know the secret of how you do that. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I... Uh... You know, this this series is about social change and, mm. you know, I've been thinking a lot about the power of games for social change. And one of the things I was thinking is one of the key problems in trying to make a change in the world, like trying to trying to start a social program, starting to trying to get people to change their behavior to stop littering or mm. in a developing nation. How do you get them to start? applying these hygiene practices or mm. these medical practices that they haven't been used before. And the thing is, is it's just incredibly difficult to get people to buy into something that changes their behavior, changes their habits, and getting them to stick with it. And in my mind, games are are the only medium that I know of that really consistently does that, that convinces people, hey, spend your time here, do this, do what we want you to do and sometimes do it for years with zero incentive, you know, yeah. other than a promise that this is going to be cool. You know, that's that's definitely something that, you know, World of Warcraft is the epitome of it. But mm. games in general are very, very good at. Mm. I really agree. And, I, you know, I think that's so, you know, when we, we, we were kind of having an early conversation about this setting up this discussion and uh I was talking at that time about how um, I've seen people using games to essentially try to explore and solve social problems, you know. Like, I think I'm very interested, personally, very interested in the ways that um, people use games as tools and not always in the exact way that the games designers probably had in mind, okay. 
you know, I kind of collect examples of that because I just generally love it when I sort of consumers do things a bit wrong on purpose because there are often interesting results, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I've saw I saw many interesting behaviors, forms of behavior happening in uh, World of Warcraft, like. There were some um, people who used it to keep in touch with members of their family when they've been geographically dispersed, right? And right. so they were essentially just using it as a very fancy bit of chat software, right? Mm-hmm. It's essentially just text messaging as well, because WoW's only just introduced voice as well, you know what I mean? So they're essentially right. just using it as a very, very high-spec, flashy text messaging program, <laughs> you know? Then on another occasion, I encountered a... Um, I was in one of the major cities or Grimoire, which is quite a decent size, you know, and um, I encountered a guild who were playing a game of hide-and-seek around the city, which was not what it was intended for at all, but which struck me as a really creative thing to do, you know. But then on a, on a more serious note, also I kind of like it when you find people uh, using, I want to say, tools like The Sims to explore serious problems, you know. So or some genius out there... Um, noticed that um of course the, the sims even though it tries to leave as much of the story as possible to the players who invent it has to set up some kind of a premise in order for the game to happen at all right and so and it's very white bread and optimistic isn't it the sims world you know what i mean it's all very white picket fence and mm-hmm. sanitized and you know what i mean yeah. and you, you know it clearly wants to be played in a certain way doesn't it it's full of semiotic signs which are kind of telling you like flashing signposts telling you this is how you should play this game right and it's it's all too clear that what you're supposed to do really for all the f- open world sandbox elements really what you're supposed to do is just like you know like make a nice young couple get married have a couple of babies you know get a semi-detached and a hatchback car and all of that stuff right, <laughs> right. and so um it was noticeable to me then when um, one particularly inspired uh, blogger set himself the project of um, playing this game as a homeless person, which was just struck me as a moment of lucidity, you know? It was this moment of insight which says this entire game is about owning a home. That's the whole mm. entire game of that. The whole premise of that game is home ownership, right? and decorating your home and filling your home with a nuclear family and all of that stuff. And so somebody in a moment of genius kind of thought, oh, well, what I should do is set myself this project where I play as a homeless character to find out if it's even possible. And it is actually um, Mm. just about because, you know, like food grows abundantly on trees and that kind of thing. And it is more or less possible for a homeless sim to survive. But as a matter of fact, this this strikes me that um, when when I had a look at the sort of mods that people were writing for The Sims, which are very reflective of the game they want, which lies just below the surface of the game they have in their hands, okay? Uh, When you look at the mods that people write for The Sims, it's clear to me that they're desperate for some of this type of thing. That they they are modding The Sims so that they they can get to the game they want to play, which is a game that includes all manner of stuff, like, um, like homelessness, or there's a mod that you can use which will, um, cause your your characters and your families to suffer the burden of crippling bills which you know you can only just pay and they there are mods that will introduce the problem of unwanted pregnancy which i again i just think is brilliant right because the sims in its very kind of sanitized version of course included pregnancy but it was definitely something within the player's control so the risky pregnancy mod adds a whole like big spoonful of realism into your game right where now your characters can get pregnant even if you didn't want or intend them to, okay? 
Um, and I believe that it also introduces a feature of infertility as well, which is great. You know, people kind of want to explore this type of stuff. And there are also um, there, there are mods also which allow your characters in game to become religious, which is something that AI has steered away from over the years. Hmm. But, um, you know, there are kind of player written mods that will allow your your character to engage in religious practice. And, you know, I'd like to see that being developed a lot more personally. I think because right now it introduces a physical action of prayer, which is enough of a tool for people to tell a story around it. But I would love to see uh, religiosity developed as more of a character trait, as well as perhaps a trait of something like tolerance or intolerance for mm-hmm. other sims. You see what I mean? And this is the point where the game starts to get really interesting. It's because it has this kind of white bread, white picket fence appearance, and you think they, it's going to be about college students endlessly dating. But in fact, if you look at what players are actually making the game do, taking matters into their own hands, the issues that they're trying to explore are much, much, much deeper than just mm. high school kids going on dates. You know what I mean? And people actually do want to, you can see the evidence is right there, that they actually do want to explore things, you know, like, you know, reproductive politics and um, religion and, um, you know, kind of domestic violence and um, social problems and stuff like that. I would absolutely love it if some games developer would step up to the plate and because EA is not going to do this and I can kind of see why. But I would love it if somebody would develop a version of The Sims that was more adult in its mm-hmm. content and which was designed to let people explore exactly these kinds of issues because the evidence is clear that they want to, you know, and right now they were having to modify somebody else's game to get that. Plus 7 Intelligence is brought to you by Mac Weldon. I admit it, I had a lucky pair of underwear. And recently I had to retire it, along with a bunch of other clothes. And to get some new gear, I mean clothes, I turned to Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is reinventing men's basics. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. You might have heard about Mac Weldon underwear, but you can also get a full loadout there. Shorts, shirts, accessories, whatever you need. You can easily find what you're looking for to min-max, with descriptions of the benefits of the uniquely engineered fabrics and styles on every page. I was really happy with how Mac Weldon upgraded my wardrobe. And just for you Plus 7 Intelligence listeners, for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code PLUS7 at checkout. Again, that's 20% off, and all you have to do is enter... P-L-U-S, numeral 7. Plus 7 Intelligence is also brought to you by Quality Control. Quality Control is a podcast from our friends at Polygon, where they discuss the latest video games, movies, shows, and comics. The show is co-hosted by senior reporter Charlie Hall and Guides editor Dave Tack, along with special guests and critics. But they aren't content to just offer hot takes. They go in-depth and bring in additional context and background that you don't get from other shows. You'll get a chance to hear about the latest games with the folks who get to play them first and get a quality rundown. Recent episode topics include the unlikely resurrection of No Man's Sky, how to work through your backlog of tabletop RPGs, and the long road that led to the release of We Happy Few. Quality Control is available for free every week on Apple Podcasts, as well as Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you're listening. Check it out. Yeah, that's really interesting because what you're talking about, the kind of whitewash version of reality, yeah. that's what a lot of people point to as a criticism of games is that 
you know, these people, they're playing a game. It's not like reality, you know, and they read into that as being indicative of what gamers are like, that they avoid real life circumstances, real life problems. But a lot of gamers, they are actually very interested, like you said, in kind of engaging in these problems within a game, engaging with things that are darker, things that are more difficult. They're more reflective of what real life can be like sometimes. Mm. And um, one of the games that I have talked about in this series, it's a simulator, but it's not like a home simulator. It's a simulator for what life is like for people in a war zone. Mm. And it takes a very honest approach to the suffering and the difficulty for people who, you know, are displaced, who mm. are affected. They're in a war zone, but they're not fighters. They're just mm. the people who have to survive it. That game is called This War of Mine. And that game had, you know, a very, very positive reception because it was so honest and so real. And uh, and it was very revolutionary in that respect. And it was pretty successful. So I just find that interesting that, like you said, gamers are interested in using games to engage with things that are a lot more difficult. You know, they're not idyllic like uh, mm. like games of the past have only allowed them to do. Mm. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's this kind of emotional or um, moral dichotomy that's found in gaming where if you sort of look at gaming from the point of view of an outsider, you would think that all games could be neatly classified into two types, right? So um, on the one hand, you would have things that are just about insane amounts of violence, just like big shoot-em-ups, you know, I don't know, Call of Duty and stuff like that. And then, uh, which are just kind of, you know, if you wanted to be critical about it, you could just say, well, it's very easy to say, well, it's encouraging violence and it's bloodthirsty and blah, blah, blah. And then um, at the other end of the scale, there's a smaller group of games, which are things like The Sims, where it's relentlessly happy. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, you know, and I guess there might be other games that would fit that mould as well. Like, I suppose, um, like Nintendo's Animal Crossing and things like that, you know, where Mm -hmm. it's all incredibly cutesy and happy, happy, you know, and you sort of wonder, well, this is the absolute epitome of a waste of time, you know. If you somehow thought that people were wasting their time when they were playing Call of Duty or Fortnite, then you're sort of wasting it even more badly if you play Animal Crossing, aren't you? Not that I've got anything against Animal Crossing, but you (laughs) you can say there's there's this kind of polarised view of games that are all happy and therefore not serious, right? Mm -hmm. And then games which are a problem because they are too serious, where you're just running around with a giant machine gun, okay? (laughs) But I think that um, that's sort of a false dichotomy, really, and that when you look at games more closely... I don't think that when, and particularly what people are doing when they're playing games and how they modify games to make them suit their own purposes, I don't think that emotional dichotomy turns out to be a very reliable one because I think what gamers gravitate to the most is something with a bit of moral ambiguity to it and a bit of moral depth, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the upshot of that is that, uh, for example, um, you know, I already talked about people kind of modifying the Sims to make it darker and more realistic, but also I'm quite interested in things like Grand Theft Auto V and how that turned out on closer inspection to be way more complex than people were giving it credit for, okay? Mm. So when Grand Theft Auto V came out, I mean, it's a shock series. You expect it to make an impression with every new iteration, obviously. They kind of, that's their job, really, right? They wouldn't be, if they didn't, if somebody wasn't upset, then, you know, there would be a problem and people would wonder if Rockstar had gone off 
off the boil, you know? Yeah, it's so part of their marketing. Yeah, you expect there to be shock content. But but I think that um, just taking this into account, it wasn't that surprising when people were upset about GTA V because there's a torture scene in there principally and some other stuff that's a bit, you know, provocative. But actually, I've played GTA V in some depth and what I thought helped to account for its success was that these three main characters who were offered to you as a player to kind of play with them and their life stories are really, they're not just straightforwardly bad guys and they're also not without any moral code. They're just a bit warped, you know? Mm. They're flawed individuals who are disadvantaged and flawed in their own ways. You know what I mean? So, you know, one guy's young and poor and another guy is um, yeah, a very unlikely hero for a video game in the sense that he's kind of middle-aged, tight-lipped, angry, plays a lot of golf. <laughs> has marital problems, you know? It's when And when you come to get to know these characters, what we see is that while none of them can win awards for being a nice person, that they're um, each um, uh, uh, struggling with different, different, different things and that it leads them, the whole game actually is one of making one moral decision after another, you know what I mean? Hmm. About where your priorities are and how you treat other people and, you know, whether you're prepared to double cross a friend to make some extra cash and you know of course it includes things like you know you know getting into shootouts with the police and all that type of stuff but it struck me as quite a morally complex playground in contrast to something like uh, the witcher 3 which a lot of people loved which i thought was really shallow you know what i mean mm. i thought it was really shallow like a lot of people talk about the witcher 3 as though there's nothing wrong with the hero of that story Geralt. But again, I played that game when I was having that big epic year of console gaming, okay, and I played The Witcher 3, and that I'm here to say that guy, the lead character, Geralt, he sucks, okay? <laughs> he's a horrible, horrible guy, you know? He's yeah. um, he's a ruthless burglar. He'll, he'll kind of march through these rundown villages, you know. When I was playing him, he marched into this hut, this hovel, you know, in this disgusting village, and there were a family on the floor with their child, incidentally. Two parents and a child lying on the floor of this hovel, dying of the plague, right? A harrowing situation, to say the least. And he just marches in there without acknowledging them, you know, loots the house <laughs> for whatever paltry <laughs> coins he can find and then steps over their, their bodies on the way out the door. He's a disgusting character. He's got no... <laughs> I don't know how any, really. I don't know how anybody manages to um to play that game and come out of it thinking what a great guy he is. You know what I mean? But oh, yeah. um, I think this is why ultimately why GTA Five is a better game than Witcher Three, right? That's what I'm trying to say here, because there are different ways of being a horrible guy who does bad things. Okay, and and Geralt in The Witcher Three does it in this sort of unthinking way that doesn't leave you any further forward at the end of the game, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think all of the characters in GTA Five, while they're not particularly likable have a lot more moral decision-making capacity and a more well-developed view of the world. And that it offers a much larger space for this kind of creative thinking and problem-solving that I think players gravitate to, which is quite something when you take into account that GCI is quite proud of its story of origin about how it started out as this sort of racing game. So the fact that you get this big kind of psychological open space space sketch punctured drawn as well is quite something that's quite a good deal really mm-hmm. yeah that's an interesting thing about uh consequences in games and what mm. consequences mean 
because traditionally games have had no consequences, but but there have been games throughout that have included you know some some measure of consequence for for your actions, whether it's like in GTA Five where the cops will just you know start swarming mm-hmm. around you the the more you do, or if it's like a Mass Effect game, a Bioware game where your comrade will come up to you after you make a decision to be like, hey, I didn't like that. That's a that's a really interesting aspect of games that what games encourage. And like you said, the way that the game designers want you to play a game can have really interesting consequences, especially because people will, like you said before, they might just buck those expectations entirely. But at least they're there. At least they they kind of shape the intent of the game and show what the heart of the game is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So you've got this really interesting thing. I almost want to say it's a kind of dialectical relationship between the game itself and the person that's playing the game, right? Mm-hmm. So the game is designed in certain ways that will offer you a certain kind of visual environment and a set of game mechanics and, you know, a wide range of activities that you could be involved in. And a lot of that will, even with a game that's trying to be really open and sandboxy, will still kind of impose its own version of reality on you, the player. And I think, frankly, a lot of people quite explicitly regard that as a challenge and will hmm. look for ways to um, do something other than what they're supposed to be doing. And for me, as a psychologist and an observer of human behaviour, that's where it really starts to get interesting. There was a really interesting behaviour. I just want to say Skyrim, OK, <laughs> which also had a lot of mods written for it. And because, again, because it was one of those vast games that... Um, people sunk huge numbers of hours into that resulted in some very interesting gamer behavior so um if you've ever played skyrim Mm -hmm. at some point you will have found that you were the owner of too many balls of cheese (laughs) okay (laughs) so these large sort of football sized cheese balls are a thing in skyrim okay and you know so when you're out stealing food or just make purchasing groceries, you will end up with these things in your inventory, and they're actually quite prevalent. And one guy, I think he might have had a little feature in PC Gamer or something like that. He'd 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 just out of God knows what human impulse had um, decided to save all of his cheeses instead of just you know vendor trashing them. And so he'd bought a small house that was like his spare house, you know, not the one that he lived in all the time. And every time he he, he was given one of these balls of cheese, he would put it in there, you know. And he got some amazing screenshots because he eventually filled up the whole building. (laughs) (laughs) I got some incredible screenshots of this place, absolutely stuffed to the ceiling with cheese. (laughs) And I think, you know, there's something really fascinating going on there. There's a whole, it might seem like a trivial behaviour, but I think there's a whole lot of stuff just waiting to be unpacked in there. And one of the things that kind of, it's clearly an absurd thing to do. It um, is a form of mockery, if you like. It's a way of mocking the the game designers who permitted choose to be that, that, you know, frequently occurring in the game. But also it occurred to me that it wouldn't have worked quite so well if you picked something else, another common item. Let's say loaves of bread, for example, right? So a small medieval house full of loaves of bread is pretty funny and surreal, but doesn't quite hit the same level of comedy as a house full of cheese. (laughs) Um, And the reason for that is because cheese has a um, 
as a, I want to say, a semiotic sign. So what I mean by that is that cheese doesn't just exist as a sort of greasy product which you can eat with burgers. Um, it also exists as an idea. It has a cultural, certain cultural status as an idea. And it's one of a small number of things which has a lot of expectations of comedy attached to it. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to tell a funny story or a joke and you needed to introduce a food item in there, you can't go wrong with cheese. <laughs> it really lends itself to that kind of activity. So there's a, I just noticed there was a whole lot of that going on in Skyrim. And there were also interesting things. like There was one really shocking mod where um, uh, people had introduced like modern-day cars that you could drive around. And, you know, for those of us who've been playing, invested many hours in Skyrim and for whom that um, that place seemed like a real place, it's very shocking to see photographs of, um, of people driving around in sports cars. And mm. again, I don't, I don't think this is a um, trivial activity. I think that people are actually doing a kind of philosophical um, experimentation when they do this type of stuff. In the most mm-hmm. same way that they philosophically experiment on that Reddit group outside, you know that group. There's, a, there's, a, yeah, there's a Reddit group called um, Outside, and it's for gamers. And oh, yeah. they, the whole mission of the group is to explore philosophical questions that arise as a result of assuming that all that stuff that you do when you're not playing video games is itself a video game. So going to work, having a family, all of that type of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the premise of the group as a basis for philosophical discussion is that all of that is a game which they refer to as outside and they then discuss what they can figure out about how the game works and, you know, they discuss game mechanics and all of that type of stuff. So mm-hmm. I sort of think that when people do these kind of slightly bizarre things in Skyrim, for example, that they're not just being crazy, that there's actually some philosophical work going on there and, you know, it's really under-researched. It's a form of human behaviour that we don't know that much about yet. So that's mm-hmm. I, think, I think that there are lots of interesting sort of discoveries being waiting to be made there about why people behave the way they do. Yeah, and I think that's that's definitely the case. This has been a great discussion about about some great examples of that. So I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining me. Can you point listeners to places online that they might find information about your work? So probably the single best place to find me actually is on LinkedIn. So that's a great place to look me up. Uh, my surname is Laws, L-A-W-E-S. So if people were to look up Rachel Laws on LinkedIn, I publish stuff there all the time, including some gaming content. And then I've also recently started to write for the um, website gamebyte.com. So that's game, B-Y-T-E.com. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a great day, even though it's rainy and cold in London. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was lovely to talk to you. Speak to you soon, I hope. Thanks to Rachel for coming on the show to talk about her writings and observations on games from her perspective. Like I mentioned before, I really enjoyed how she would take a situation that we might think of as an outlier but she points out how it reveals things about what gamers really want out of games. And that in turn reveals things about how we interact with the world. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. And another reminder, my next series is on games and education. So if you have ideas for guests or topics to cover for that series, I'd love to hear those stories. You can find Plus7 Intelligence on Twitter. That's at seven underscore intelligence. 
And we also have a great community for discussing games in the Plus 7 Intelligence Discord server. And you can join that at discord.gg slash plus 7. That's P-L-U-S numeral 7. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in 7. Music for this episode provided by the ever-elusive and mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder.